Hello and welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Loss's weekly podcast. Myself, Galen Stops, and as ever, I am joined by Colin Lambert, Managing Editor of Profit and Loss. I think the, the obvious jumping off point for us this week, Colin, has to be the BIS numbers. Yes. Six point six trillion. Six point six. How did we get there? Exactly. In FX, unless you were living under a rock this week, you had this number uh, jammed in your inbox, jammed in your WhatsApp and text, and um, tattooed on your forehead. Yeah, pretty much. It was, it was hard to escape that number this week. I mean, well, it happens every three years. So, and and we've talked before about how the last numbers. Everybody references them for three years, but three years on, they're a little stale. Um, so, yes. so now this will very much be the reference point for the market going forward. 6.6 trillion. Were you surprised? Very. And I'm trying to think, I mean, off the top of my head, I've had a lot of conversations this week, but I don't think I've found anyone that wasn't surprised by it. It's, um, I think most people that I spoke to before the number was made public were putting it around the high 5 trillion mark. And I think actually... And I'm really loath to do this, Galen, I've got to be honest. But I think that might also have been the number that you may have put on it on your uh, prediction. Profit and Loss's own Nostradamus over here did, yeah. in fact, yet another prediction that I made at the start of the year going my way. Um, yeah, one of my predictions that well, FX will get back to growth in the BIS survey. Uh, I, th- I predicted, I, I was a little off, I was in the right direction. Yeah. I said between yeah. 5.8 and 6.1 trillion. Yes. Yeah, and, and and you know what? Actually, I think um, I would have agreed with your your estimation, and I think most people would have agreed with your estimation. But only after the FX committee surveys that came out in July. Had you asked us in May, and you look at the numbers that came out in May from the platforms for April, that is, we would have said, "Yeah, no way is it going to go up." Which, and that's what I find really interesting. Which only makes my prediction made in January all the more remarkable, Colin. What can I say? I'm so happy for you. Uh, I also I also <laughs> mentioned that um, that that uh, swaps was going to be a big growth figure. A growth. Yeah. Figure. I said I said last time round swaps trading grew six percent, and I said that this growth figure will more than double in the 2019 survey. I can only hope that the listeners really feel the pain in my voice when I say, very well done. Someone, I'm not kidding, someone should be paying me for this stuff, Colin. <laughs> oh, believe me, as someone who's got the old prediction right, and I mean, very much mean the old prediction, nobody pays you for anything in this world, mate. How's, um, how's your trade the, of the year doing, by the way? We haven't checked in on it for a while. Actually, we haven't, actually. I think last time I checked, it was looking pretty rough. <laughs> but thanks for bringing it up. Um, I mean, on the BIS stuff, I think it's uh, there's a few interesting things there. Yes, I mean, obviously, everyone's highlighted the fact that FX swaps have driven so much of the growth, um, and they did. What really genuinely surprised me was that spot was up 20% on that three-year span. Right, because the because, platforms seem yeah. to very much indicate otherwise. I mean, April, I think we joked yeah. about on this podcast when we saw the April volumes. And I was like, well, yeah. there goes one of my predictions for the year. Yes. Yeah. And and so there's that clear disconnect there because you're going like, if you look at, I mean, say, so, so spots up 20%. And I think um, in terms of the primary venues, 
I mean, I think EBS was down about 18 to 20%, and so was Refinitiv. So your primary venues are seeing a lot in volume. The other venues are taking up some of the slack, but actually the platforms that do report, you know, um, collectively, volume was down by about 2.5%. So where is this volume going? And I think this is where we look at it and go, actually, I think this is a an indication that the public uh, public platform model or the highly visible model is starting to lose traction in the market. As buy-side clients start looking at um, market impact, they look at where they trade and what liquidity pools they access. Mm-hmm. And I think what the BIS numbers and overlaid with the platform data are telling us is that a lot of the clients are saying, actually, if I'm that worried about market impact, I'm not going to this venue or that venue. Um, not because the venue is um, not liquid, it is. But um, I don't know if you remember last year there was a, a BIS paper on the FX market structure. And if I remember rightly, it said, yeah, although the primary venues are um, seeing a reduction in volume, which was definitely seen in this survey, they are even more influential in terms of the price formation. And that is, to me, why I think we're seeing this disconnect, because I look at it and go, if I'm going to execute 50, let's, I mean, let's pick, um, let's pick, you know, matching for 50 Aussie or 50 Kiwi. If I'm going to execute 50 million, um, we're getting a stage now where the last place I'm going to go is the primary venue. Because if I put a bid or offer on that primary venue, Every other venue replicates that bid as everyone recycles that price. And I honestly do not know how the primary venues can get out of this cycle because you know, we can dictate how the market moves on these venues, but we're not actually getting the volume traded because everyone runs away scared. It's a, I think it's a genuinely tough business problem for these people. So so you think the trend is for is towards more kind of opacity rather than towards lit markets then. Funny that, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, but genuinely, I think, yeah, we, we said this about the regulators two, three years ago when this stuff first started, but everything's about transparency. No, and, and to be fair, give a shout out to the Global Code because what the Global Code does right is it says that what we want is transparency of action. And that's what's important. It's not about the transparency of order. Because if you have transparency of order, you get slippage, you get signaling risk, and it and everything goes pear-shaped, technical market term there. But if you have transparency of action, then you can at least turn around and say, that, that's why I did that. That's why I wanted to trade on that price or that venue. Um, and, yeah, guess what? I didn't get the market slippage because I didn't signal to everybody what I was doing. But 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 doesn't that get problematic if if so much of the market goes uh, becomes less transparent? If I'm trying to prove that I I got best execution, um, doesn't that make it slightly harder when I don't know where a large part of the market is is executing? Well, that's I think honestly I believe that's where we are now, because if I look at a TCA report 
and the TCA report, you know, driven by, um, you could you could take a TCA report of an in, independent platform, but if they're taking just public market data, they're showing you what happened in ten to fifteen percent of the market. That's not a good TCA report, but we have to have something, don't we? Apparently, um, I tend to think that instinctively people should know whether it's a good fill or not, but we need some sort of parameter around it. Um, yeah. In reality, I would say if you're going to query the public, or sorry, the execution of your order because the public data is better, then you're dealing with the wrong LP or executing broker because you know, internalization is meant to be the big thing around this. If you want no market impact, go to a big internalizer. Well, if you go to a big internalizer, then the execution should be better than it would be on a public platform. So if you're getting a TCA report saying you've done worse, then I think you could turn around and genuinely ask your executing broker what the hell do you think you were doing. Okay, another another different point of data point that I wanted to ask you about was um, you published a uh, a piece on the rise of the others. Who are yes. the others, and what does it mean that they're rising? Um, so generally speaking, the others are. I'm trying to work out. I'm, not, I'm trying to think of an appropriate word because <laughs> every word I'm thinking of is inappropriate. But. Um, so inappropriate word. Yeah, inappropriate. Sorry. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. All I can say is what it's, it's what ten thirty in London now. Um, what I would say is I think I mean what the the others are those firms that are maybe financial institutions, but are not recognised as such under any regulation. They don't have. They're not subject to rules. Generally speaking. It's the retail aggregators. Okay. And the retail aggregation share of of market volume went from something like 180-odd billion to 500. Yeah. So half a trillion dollars worth of volume every day is coming from these retail aggregators. And that's, that's partly a question of the reputational um, risk that banks were taking on and decided they want when they were dealing with retail you know, three, six, nine years ago in BI's terms. Um, they were looking to trade with that retail flow, but then very quickly realized, and if they didn't realize it before, they certainly realized it after January 2015, um, that that retail flow it creates too many problems for them. So the retail aggregator came in. So I think there's that sort of, a lot of it is around that area. I think the fact that the non-bank market makers in particular love that retail aggregator flow because they find they can handle it better than the banks for some reason. Um, so they're pricing it even better, which is probably encouraging more flow into the market. Okay. Um, I, I, I find that interesting because I think if if you ask a most of the LPs out there, and say so there are one or two non-banks that do well out of this flow, but if you ask most of the LPs out there, they would turn around and say that the retail aggregator flow is the toughest flow they get. And yet 
it's growing. That must represent a challenge at some stage for some of these LPs. Um, then obviously there's a number. We'll continue to dissect the BIS surveys. In fact, for actually for the Q4 edition of the magazine, we're going to be doing yeah. kind of a big in-depth dive, kind of analysing things down a number of, of uh, different kind of axes. Um, one thing I wanted to get your view on. Um, I've heard you express privately some uh, skepticism about these numbers, these hallowed BIS numbers that we will be referencing henceforth for the yeah. next three years, Colin. Yes. Why, um, why such scepticism? Hmm. Well, where do we start? I think the for a start, the BIS actually acknowledges that they include internal flow, and I sometimes wonder whether you've you know, if you're looking at flow within an institution, is that genuinely liquidity that's going to hit the market? Because a lot of it is netted off, but I think it's like you know cumulatively adds up to quite a lot. Um, you get institutions that will trade with their branches, and sometimes they don't net this stuff off, which I think is bizarre. Um, but I think I, 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 I need to be clear here. Well done, Galen. You've done well. You've got another prediction right. I thought it was a bit of a tap-in, but the fact it's even higher than the number we thought is means it's not. But I genuinely think that the – I think the real number would be probably a billion dollars less, a trillion dollars less. Okay. Um, because of the, all the internal stuff that goes through there, which never sees light of day. And we have to argue that if we're looking at the BI survey as being a measure of market liquidity – then maybe we need to look at it in a slightly different fashion and take out a lot of the internal flows that the BIS reports. Um, you know, I mean, FX swaps made up a huge percentage of what we did. And again, I'm seeing a disconnect. So I've seen a disconnect in the spot and I'm seeing a disconnect in these swaps because we live in a world where credit is apparently really tight and there's a real problem sort of getting, releasing credit and capital to businesses, and yet, and I, I accept it's a very low um, intensity here, but the most capital intensive part of foreign exchange, i.e., FX swaps, suddenly goes up to 3.2 trillion. How does that happen? Um, I mean, so one person that, that I spoke to about this, um, when I asked that, that same question, about the swaps, that they kind of shrugged and they said they didn't think it was going to be this high, but they knew swaps trading was going to grow simply because AUM has grown. Now that they stress that the fact that AUM yeah. has grown doesn't necessarily mean that, that people are making more money, um, but they yeah. said AUM's grown, so they naturally expected swaps to grow. Now that they were, they, yeah. they said they haven't done the analysis yet to check whether the growth was in with was in line with AUM growth. Um, and to be fair, I haven't yeah. sat down and, and done the math on that either. Um, I'm becoming so American maths. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but, so. And so you're that, still under house arrest, I can't believe it. Um, so yeah, that's, that's one thing to, to keep an eye on. Um, yeah. I mean, in terms of the, the disconnect, I actually had an interesting conversation, uh, with a senior figure at one bank this week 
where I was kind of asking them, we were talking about the numbers and I was saying, you know, it was interesting that um, the we had this uh, huge growth, right? 1.5 trillion is a massive amount of growth. Yeah. Um, and it came at a time when in FX more broadly, we were having multi-decade lows in volatility. And obviously volatility is quite often a, a driving factor in uh, market volumes. And so I was saying to, you know, do you, do you view um, FX kind of as an attractive business because you look at it and say, wow, it's, it's, it's growing, this is great, or do you look at it and say, oh, there's very little volatility, it's hard for us to, to make money as a firm that you know, engages in market making? Yeah. Um, and, and the answer I got was kind of interesting because they said that they view it as a very attractive business, but they didn't actually reference the market at all when explaining why. Um, when they said that, that why they thought... Um, it was such an attractive business as they was like, it's got such a high barrier to entry these days. And that barrier is, is technology. Um, they were saying that the, the level of expertise that a firm and particularly a bank needs to have to be profitable in FX is, is higher than it's ever been. The amount that the top players have to invest is massive. Um, and this bank was talking about their, their own experiences in having to kind of rewrite their pricing and risk management technologies as competitors came in with, you know, smarter, faster, better offerings because they'd invested. Um, and this person was saying that, that they saw how quickly you can lose your edge in FX if you don't make this massive investment constantly. Um, and they were saying, you know, the pace at which you can lose market share in this business and the pace at which the competition is improving is terrifying. Uh, the, you know, their phrase was, you know, if you stand still, you're absolutely dead. Um, which I thought it was quite interesting that that barrier to entry was seen as as one of the, the key reasons why it, it was an attractive market. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I kind of get where they're coming from. And this actually comes to something we'll be talking about on one of the sessions in Forest Network Chicago next week. Because... Um, I'm kind of I kind of made a bold statement, and we decided to actually entitle the session with this. But I basically said FX is no longer a trading business, which I think some listeners will find controversial. But I look at it and go, if you're not holding risk for anything longer than a few seconds, or you know, thirty seconds even, your actual risk holding is being dictated by data. It's not being dictated by whether or not you think the market is going up or down or whatever your signals are. I, I totally understand there are firms out there that are trading and pricing according to short-term alpha signals. But generally speaking, that's again, those alpha signals are driven by data. And the cost of data, and you and I have got, I know both of us agree on this. It's one of the things we do agree on, and, and that is that, we keep on hearing this mantra of the data's getting cheaper. Yeah. Yes, it is, but no, it's not. Because, <laughs> yes, the, provide, the providers are actually giving it away a bit cheaper, but you're having to consume more and more of it, which means your data bill overall is significantly higher than it was. Yeah. And that's where I think that that barrier to entry thing comes in. Because FX is a data business, not necessarily a trading business. I mean, it's... Yeah, it's a moot point on these things, and I tend to feel that we may go back the other way at some stage um, towards a more risk-assuming market. You know, at the moment, we're pushing risk to the buy side. 
I honestly believe at some stage the buy side will say, we don't want this risk, and they'll push it back. And that will be a critical moment in the foreign exchange industries, um, or history, quite frankly. Um, to go back to your original point, actually, around the swaps, the one thing I would say, though, is we're talking about the lack of volatility in foreign exchange. There's been quite a lot of volatility in interest rates, and that's what drives FX swaps. So maybe we shouldn't have been surprised by this um, increase in volume because, you know, all of a sudden, you know, the interest rate outlook for most major economies and quite a few emerging economies became a lot less clear around February, March, when the Fed suddenly went, and the Fed leads most of these things, and the Fed suddenly went, hmm, yeah, you know, these interest rate rises we put in place, maybe that wasn't the best idea. And I know that Donald was like, yeah, was pressuring them and so on and so forth. But it's, I kind of think, you know, we've got interest rate volatility at the moment, and that's why the numbers are showing up in the FX swaps. So, um, I, an interesting question to me, and you know, you may have a thought on this as well, is, so we have seen FX swap volume skyrocket, and I think that's a fair. Uh, a fair you know, use of descriptive language. I would agree. Yep. And it's done so in a very, very difficult credit environment. What will this volume look like if we do manage to free up that credit, those credit bottlenecks that we have? You know, does that lead to a huge expansion in FX swaps volume? Or does it just basically make what we're doing a little bit more efficient and actually nobody pays any attention? It means that BIS uh, 2022, Colin, goes to uh, nine trillion. Easy. Oh, <laughs> well, obviously, I am going to hold you to that now. I was kidding. Um, no, I, I love it. No, no, no. Well, no, I love a big call, mate. You know that. <laughs> but um, no, I'm sorry. I think I think every listener on this uh, to this podcast will now acknowledge that Galen <laughs> Stops has said that the BIS in 2022 will be nine trillion. And if it is, I will be. Genuinely gutted. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to move on actually because uh, I think the uh, the BIS stuff we can come back to. As you say, the uh, the the Q4 P and L, we'll be looking at all that stuff in depth, and I'm sure we'll get to it on the um, on the uh, podcast in months going forward. But we published something you done on FXPB this week with uh, the Rocky Road of FXPB as part of our um, perspective of the last 20 years in foreign exchange. And I found some of your insights into the PB world really, really interesting around, you know, like how, um, I guess it's going back to your barriers to entry, how the barriers to entry have been risen, they've dropped, they've risen, they've dropped. What part of cycle do you think we're in? Yeah, so it's interesting because charting, obviously, you know, when we were talking to people about the kind of the big trends, the big kind of themes of the last 20 years, you know, FXPB was part of that kind of that e-trading kind of revolution that came in and really helped the volumes explode um, in kind of the the early part of the the millennium, kind of the first decade, right? Um, Yeah. and, And from, you know, until kind of financial crisis, right? Um, it was it was business was booming for these firms, and it was great, and it was helping you know bring more people into the market who perhaps couldn't access this wholesale market directly before, and, and all of this good stuff. But 
But in the last 10 years or so, we have, we've seen, we've seen huge fluctuations, right, in terms of both the pricing and the willingness of banks to offer FXPB services. Um, and obviously, you know, we've talked about on this podcast before, and we've written about, um, you know, City's decision to kind of cut some of its clients. Yeah. But, but, and, and obviously, sort of separate to that, but also around the same time, changed their pricing model. Um, and obviously, when they did this, they were kind of the biggest PB house going by some distance. Um, and, and it's interesting because that's just the latest in a series of, um, of kind of ups and downs for the industry. And, and so, I mean, to me, there was one quote that um, I thought was kind of interesting, which uh, Chip Lowry from State Street is quoted as saying, you know, that, that now, especially in the context of what banks have to deal with in terms of stress tests and capital requirements, he was like, we, we're still wondering what is the right price of credit. And, and yes, I know, you know, market factors have changed and you have new capital requirements, etc. But I still find it remarkable that this far into, you know, FXPB is not anything new, that we're still no. kind of asking, how do we price this thing? What is what is the right price? What is yeah. the right level of access we should be giving people? Um, I, yeah. think, I think that's quite interesting that we still don't seem to have figured that out as an industry. I was saying to someone today, I remember back in the day when you know, a, a bank would call you up and ask you for a price in larger than normal amount, and you had to go to, to a computer printout. And like, you know, um, actually, someone today said to me, oh, like, Posty Panky Helsinki. Now, Posty Helsinki will be a name for a certain generation. And believe me, Gunnar, it's not yours. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there'll be a name for a certain generation. But yet, they were absolutely right. It was like, Posty Helsinki wants to do like, you know, $200 mark. Hang on a second. And you'd reach this huge swathe of computer printouts that more was printed that morning and go through to the piece and go like, uh, hang on, hang on. Yep, hang on, hang on. Yes, I can do him for that. And either you do the deal with it through via a broker or you'd make him a price if it was direct. I'm not convinced we're that much further on. I'm really not. You know, I get there's real-time credit now, but all that happens is the real-time credit kind of just builds up and builds up. We've enabled this expansion of credit, but what have we really done to alleviate the pressures that come with it? You know, we have compression cycles. Yeah, great, but we don't really have them in FX well, this to is a great also, degree. So I'm looking forward to We've got a really good um, panel on... Um, credit next week at the Chicago conference where we've got a good mix of, you know, FXPB, clearinghouse, technology provider, kind of a user of, of the service. And um, I'm, I'm interested to hear what they have to say on all of this, right? Because um, there does seem to be this this endless cycle. I, mean, I spoke to one person who's actually not in FXPB anymore, but used to be. Um, and, and their prediction was very much, this is just... The, the same thing will repeat itself. Like, you know, uh, you had, you know, JPM had all these clients and they decided that actually it didn't make sense to be doing all this, so they, they cut a bunch. And then Morgan Stanley took them up and we had that whole race to the bottom yeah. in terms of pricing. And then they 
got out of the business and then City took on all these clients and now City's cutting a lot of them going out of the business and they were they were saying, you know, they were like, I know what's going to happen. Someone else is going to come in, they'll pick up these clients, they'll become much bigger in FXPB. At some point, someone will look at it and decide it doesn't make sense. They'll cut and the whole cycle will just go on and on. That's quite depressing. I, I think it's correct, but it's quite depressing because I think we all know it's going to happen. I also um, I also wonder you talk about compression there. I mean I also wonder sometimes when we talk about you know whether it's you know more dynamic credit reallocation or you know compression tools and things like that. I don't know if we're if we're just kind of uh, solving problems and creating kind of marginal efficiencies when actually there needs to be kind of a bigger restructure or repricing. I don't know if we're, oh, if, we're, totally agree. if we're sticking a plaster on by doing these things rather than addressing yeah. the underlying issues. Totally agree. Um, I think the we need to come up with a market standard for this sort of stuff. Um, I actually tend to think, I said to someone today, I was in a meeting today, and I said today that actually the you know the move by City to get rid of these you know certain you know higher frequency trading accounts um and the fact that you know the workload involved for those firms as you've said before on this podcast has been immense and the other pbs are not exactly climbing over each other to get this business there's a keenness there but they want to do it on their terms um i wonder if this is when we look at it and go this is an opportunity to actually look at how we supply and manage um, credit in a in a better fashion, and I can only come up with one solution to it. And go like, how can we not in this day and age, with the technology we have available to us, how can we not actually turn around and go, well, that's the credit I've got available for this organisation. Let me manage that, as you say, dynamically across all these platforms. I don't get how we can't do that. I yeah I mean I mean do you, do you think that we're going to see this cycle continue on and on? Oh, that's a good question. Yes, I think we will. No, I don't think we should. Um what I would say is that if somebody manages to gain enough traction in the business, and there are several initiatives out there, but then I think it's like the data world at the moment. In the data world, you've got so many initiatives all claiming to be able to revolutionize the data world and make your life a lot easier that you end up losing everything in the white noise. You know, you can't see the wood for the trees. I wonder if the same thing is going to happen in credit because it wouldn't be a good thing. So I think credit is too important an issue. It's the one bottleneck that we haven't managed to solve. And I generally don't understand why we can't solve it because I know that, you know, to go back to my example of the spreadsheet, of the printouts, I knew that if I went through, I could look and go, okay, that client would be a, a capital reduction trade. It would be a risk reduction trade. Therefore, I can actually move my mid one point in the client's, you know, point one in the client's favor. And it's a risk additive trade. I'll move my price 0.2 against the client, against bid for the client. We know we can do this. That's what we did on. That's what we did on these printouts all those years ago. How have we not automated it? 
Um, I mean, I think we are. There's there's a bunch of fintechs out there that are doing this stuff. We need to kind of, as an industry, to my mind, rally behind one, maybe two, the way we did joking apart behind the EBS and Reuters all those years ago. Yeah. And I'm sorry to go old school on you, but basically, <laughs> we, you know, the industry rallied behind, you know, Reuters released matching, um, and all of a sudden, she went, that's great, this is really good, we've seen the future, but actually we want a redundancy plan in place, and they created EBS. I wonder whether we need something like that in, in the credit space now. Um, but we need to kind of get behind one or two ventures. Um, otherwise, we end up in a world where in three years' time, to your point, we are recycling the same problem and we end up going like, what have we achieved? Yeah. Well, on that note, we'll have to end of the week. I think by the time most listeners uh, hear this, you and I will be in Chicago already. We will. Um, looking forward to that. There's a lot of really good panels coming up next week, actually. And um, I'd say we've both done quite a few of our calls with our panelists. Um, and as always, we've had a really good rehearsal with the panelists and we'll ask absolutely totally different questions on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. <laughs> Um, but no, I, I, we've got some really good subjects coming up, and I, and I will confidently predict that you and I will be more enlightened this time next week for the podcast um, than we were today. Uh, and on that note, I'd like to thank our listeners, as always, for being with us, and say that I look forward to seeing a lot of them in Chicago.